Hi, it's Diane. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a special Halloween episode that we're in the process of preparing and which we'd like you to participate. We've crowdsourced past episodes on Mother's Day and Father's Day, and they've turned out great, and so we're doing more. We want to include the voices of our listeners, your voice, on the podcast. If you'd like to share your reflections, memories, ideas about Halloween, Day of the Dead, or All Saints Day for inclusion in the podcast, please record yourself and send the audio file to realthepodcast at gmail.com. If you have an iPhone, it's easy to record your voice using the Voice Memo app. Please record a reflection or memory that is approximately three to five minutes in length. The deadline to be included is end of day on Tuesday, October 24th. We look forward to receiving your voices. Okay, here's the show. It's um, like everything else, I guess, that I've tried to grapple with and make meaning that I can be both exhausted by and sick of all the shit, as well as be so filled with love um, in the doing of it that there's no better purpose, I guess, that I could have imagined to be able to care for somebody so kind of pure as my daughter is. From Life Atelier Studio, it's Real with Diane McDaniel, a show about people who faced adversity with resilience and creativity and the stories of how they've been transformed by the experience. I'm Diane McDaniel, and on today's episode, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Aquino, writer, disability advocate, and pastry chef. Elizabeth talks about her efforts to understand her own identity as separate from that of her now 22-year-old daughter, Sophie, who is profoundly disabled, and how the very style in which she writes conveys this fragmentation of identity. Elizabeth also talks about the importance of creativity, what it means to give care to someone until one of you dies, and the questions this caregiving raises about the value of a life and what it means to be human. Welcome, Elizabeth. Could you introduce yourself and tell us something that you like people to know about you? My name is Elizabeth Aquino. I am a writer and I have a very dark sense of humor. (laughs) maybe we'll hear a bit of that today maybe so (laughs) I've struggled a little bit in preparing for our conversation I want to talk to you about your creativity your life your outlook all of which have been shaped by your caretaking for your daughter Sophie Uh, you've talked and written about struggling with your identity as separate from your daughter would you talk a bit about that Sure. I, f- I feel like that's like the question. It was. <laughs> oh, well, then let's start with it. <laughs> I'm working on a, a book. I've been working on it for many years. That is about that. It's about identity. It's about um, the fragmentation of our identities. Um, and for me, it's been um, not just as a mother, but as a mother and caregiver to 
my daughter, who's now 22 years old. So, well, she'll be 23 early next year. I also have two sons who are typical. The one is 19 and the other is 16. So I, I say everything like I've seen and done it all as far as being a mother, meaning I have a very typical mothering life. And then I have the extreme parenting life, which is what some of us in the disability world or who care who are caregivers for our children with disabilities, we sometimes refer to ourselves as extreme parents. So as far as identity, I've written before the sentence, sometimes I don't know where I let off and my daughter begins or where she lets off and I begin. I think that's probably a struggle that's inherent in mothering anyway, once you have a child and parent it, whether you've given birth to the child, adopted the child, fostered, there's something about that kind of merging of identities, or maybe it's the subservient nature of mothering that makes identity clouded. And it becomes even more intense when that child is dependent on you literally forever. My daughter is nonverbal, so I, I take it very seriously that not only am I her mother and her caregiver, but I'm her voice, and mm-hmm. I have to advocate for her. It's not something that I would have chosen, even though it's enriched and broadened who I am, my identity. It's also um, confusing, I mm. guess. So what I'm working on when I'm writing is how to convey that confusion, um, how to carve out my own identity, not apart from her, but in spite of her, I guess. But the in spite sounds kind of uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I found that initially when I wrote my, when I was writing my book, because most of it is really written, I was writing it in a very linear way. And I found that it's opened up now as a writer and creatively when I've broken up the linear mm-hmm. and, and written it more in the form of fragments. It's like the literal work, the page, the writing, the words are a reflection of my own identity, which is much more fragmentary. Hmm. I'm just wondering about mothering your sons and extreme parenting, extreme mothering your daughter. How, how would you, how do you relate differently to your children other than the sort of obvious thing that you have to do everything for your daughter, whereas you started off having to do everything for your sons, and over time they became much more individual, able to do things themselves? I'm really realizing so much now as my children are getting older. I mean, my older son, Henry, is a freshman in college. So I've had to transition that, which was way harder than I ever thought. I think because Sophie was born first, and I was 30 years old, 31 years old, and knew nothing about anything like we all, when we all have our first child, that it took a while to get up the nerve to have another child. But I always knew that I would. And I took a lot of nerve because we were never sure 
why Sophie began seizing. She started having seizures when she was three months old after normal development. We never did discover the reason why, but her seizures proved to be refractory to medication, which means that medication didn't stop them, and neither did diets. And she was a worked up for surgery, but she was not a candidate for surgery. So whenever anybody throws in, what about, what about? Oh, yeah, we've done it all. We did it all. And mm-hmm. So to have another child was, a, you know, I, I look back on it now and think, you were brave because if something, if that had happened to my other kids, I don't know. I don't, I couldn't have dealt. Of course I would have. But as far as the first few years of Sophie's life were particularly hard. And I mean, hard, like, because I have regular kids and had typical babies who were normal developmentally didn't have seizures. It was a freaking piece of cake. Mm. That's it really was. So it sounds maybe overconfident, but the and it's not so much about perspective. It's it's like I don't I look back on having Sophie and I don't know how I did that what I did because it was kind of pre-internet. It was in the mid 90s. She was born in 95. So, you know, had no information other than that that I would get like from a nurse a friend who was in nursing school would go to the medical library and pull out papers and mimeograph them and send them to me. I didn't know anybody who had a child with a disability until I started going to a mom support group. Right, so you had no community. Right. I never slept. I we I literally never slept. My husband and I'm divorced from him now, but he worked 24/7 as a chef and helped when he could, but it was basically me. So when I had Henry and he he was fine. And we got through that kind of initial three to six months by, you know, force of will not being filled with anxiety that he would suddenly start seizing. Mm. Everything that he did was like seemed not just like he's a genius, but that, Mm. oh my gosh, like it was effortless. Development was effortless. But it also served to like make me realize just how hard my daughter worked for the same Mm. advances. So it was sobering. And the second he was born, I was also very aware through reading on how difficult life could be for the siblings of a child with severe disabilities. So it was always in my consciousness, meaning I made lots of effort to not let things go a certain way at the same time things go that certain way because it is it is what it is i mean that's an annoying um trite expression but balancing their needs with her i mean it's just inevitable that Mm -hmm. her needs would overrule their needs and certain things so i I think even acknowledging it helped Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. they're they're incredible children um now teenagers I, I i hear that as well from other people so i feel free to not just brag on them but to say that we were a team and we saw terrible things together they saw they've seen their sister 
sees uh, it's just kind of ungodly what they've endured but mm. they're they're also very typical and they're also very funny and i think humor and having a sense of humor and bringing things back to humor and not taking things so seriously has sort of worked for for our family right but the team effort it's a balancing act and i still you know i get my youngest is very funny and very rueful, I guess. And he, I always tell the story that one night at dinner, my daughter used to have like a big grandma seizure literally every night at dinner. And we all had our job. Their dad was working because he's a chef. And so he was never home at night. So, but I sat down and with the three of them and I would feed my daughter and she would have this seizure and one would get up and go get a pillow and the other would, you know, kind of stand there. And at some point, Sophie had the seizure and the sippy cup that she used flew out of her hand and across the room and underneath a, um, a cabinet. So when the seizure was over and I brought her, carried her to her room and, you know, made sure she was okay and then go back to the kitchen. And this happened almost every single night. Like it was absurd. And I asked Oliver, the younger one, who was probably about seven or eight at the time to get her cup that had rolled under this cabinet. And mm-hmm. he was lying on the floor and reaching back behind, you know, trying to get it. And then he got a broom and he was, and he said from the floor, you know, and he's struggling to get the cup. He's like, who lives like this? <laughs> and I was like, what? And he said, who lives like this? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I mean, nobody I know lives like this. None of my friends have to do this kind of thing. And I said, well, you know, I know it's really hard, but again, this is all my conscious parenting. I have to acknowledge what he's saying. So I said, I know it's really hard, but actually a lot of people live like this. And in fact, a lot of people live worse than this. And he said, like who? (laughs) And I was like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well who's like who's worse and i said well let's say there were a, a family like us in haiti and they just had the big earthquake mm-hmm. can you imagine being very poor and not having food or not being able to get medicine and you know your sister has a th- that would be worse and so he's stabbing underneath the thing you know still pissed off and then he said well who's the worst then And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's somebody at the end, right? He's the worst. (laughs) So, you know, then I just burst out laughing. And I, so I guess the balancing with the typical kids and the atypical is, it's like a tightrope walk. And I, I use circus imagery a lot. I mean, who lives like this? You know, we do. That's how we do it. Yeah, yeah. You are a creative person with many creative outlets. You have a blog. You talked about the book you've been writing. Um, You hold a monthly salon that brings together your love of literature and baking. You trained as a pastry chef. I did. That's what I did in my first life. Yeah. So what role does creativity play in your life now? Oh my God, I just think life is just one creative act just to endure it. (laughs) I don't know if I could, I mean, thank goodness I have, um, 
it's not so much an outlet because that's sort of condescending or patronizing when people say, oh, it must be good therapy for you to write. I'm Mm. like, no, Um, that would bring in my fierce uh, feminist um, side. I, I think it's everything, your imagination, your my imagination, my creativity, my ability to articulate life as I see it is the is really the only is the way to not to survive because that makes it seem like life is just an endurance contest, but it defines everything good. I didn't write for the first 10 years of Sophie's life, but I wrote in my head. I was always a writer since I learned to write and read and a voracious reader. I didn't write, but I wrote in my head. And when I did begin writing again, um, I took a a writing extension course at UCLA Mm -hmm. with Barbara Abercrombie, who's now a dear friend and was really the person who sparked me again. I began writing in this class called Writing the Healing Story, which she began as a workshop for cancer Mm. survivors, because she herself was a cancer survivor. So I took this course, and I just started writing pieces with her prompts. Um, Before I had Sophie, I wrote a lot of fiction and Mm -hmm. some memoir stuff, but a lot of fiction, short stories and things like that. So I'd never really written nonfiction or creative nonfiction or memoir, but I started writing a little bit of the experiences of being with Sophie and having Sophie. And it was somewhere in the middle of the course where Barbara said to me, you know, you have a book, Hmm. like you have a story. And then it just never stopped. And that was more than 10 years ago. And I began writing in earnest and, and submitting for publication. And then slowly, you know, my book now is, is, has sort of morphed and changed. I had a kind of a micro memoir that was published by She Books, which was a ebook that you can get for like you know one penny on Amazon. <laughs> but it was a micro memoir. It's probably about the first few years of Sophie's life, and it's a very linear telling of it. But since that, I've been working, like I said earlier, mm-hmm. on this other one. I know that some people have a talent to articulate their thoughts and to be a writer. And I I suppose I have that. But I do believe that everyone has a creative force in them that can be sustaining um, for everything that we all have voices, we all have stories. Without that, I I don't, it just life really wouldn't be worth living. I don't, right. But I can't even conceive of it. Yeah. Even when I wasn't actually writing, I was in my head. You know, I love language and words. And I mean, I call it, we call it writer brain, where everything you observe is not fodder for like material to write, but it's literally writing in your brain. You Mm. know, the words are so. Mm -hmm. Right. We touched on uh, the pastry chef Mm -hmm. and you said, oh, that was my life before. Yeah. Uh, Talk a little bit about Let's see, I, went, I started cooking when I lived in Nashville, Tennessee. I, I graduated from college, and I got some dreadful job in a brokerage firm in Nashville, Tennessee, and I worked there for a couple of years. 
as a research assistant writing like financial reports for the retail brokers. And it was just, oh, I mean, I was whatever, 22, 23 years old. And I was going to be given a promotion. And my boss pulled me in his room and said he wanted me to in his office and he wanted me to um, write about railroads and utilities and take the certified financial planner exam and all this jazz. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) And he said, what do you mean? You have a career, you know, you're smart. I mean, I was a smart person. I said, no, I don't. I think I want to quit. And I actually quit that day. I just said, no, I want my vacation pay. And I quit. And I went home and I started um, so the promotion just made you realize, like, this is not no, where I don't I'm going. write about railroads and utilities for retail brokers. I mean, <laughs> I would, <laughs> I probably would be in a different place today if I'd stuck with that. But I started cooking in a restaurant in Nashville very soon after, and like everything in a writer's life, I was trained by a guy on prison furlough who had been to prison for murdering his wife. Oh, good. Yes, so he trained me in the kitchen, and then I became the the chef in this restaurant, which is kind of hilarious because I was young and had no experience. And but then eventually I made my way to New York, and I went to like a restaurant school that trained me in all the areas. But I really wanted to do pastry, and my first job was at this extremely luxurious fancy restaurant that was opening it was at the saint regis hotel and i was in the pastry shop and uh, as a comi which in the french hierarchy is the very lowest on the totem pole but i trained under some of the best pastry chefs in new york city and i worked there for a couple of years and then i was the assistant pastry chef at the grand hyatt which is a hotel that had 1700 rooms where you made massive quantities of everything that you did and um then i went outside the city anyway i had a sort of career Mm -hmm. Um, i met who became my husband and the father of the kids he was a chef and we met on the line in the kitchen Hmm. when i got i we got married and then i got pregnant on my honeymoon with sophie Hmm. unexpectedly i mean so i had her 10 months yes i had her shortly we were married in may and then i had her in march Mm -hmm. then my life it's it really is pre-Sophie, opre-Sophie. Yeah. So, so when, you, when you reflect on that, that time, your, your adult life prior to becoming a parent, how do you think about that woman who you were before? What do you think about her? Um, I think about her all the time, at that question of who would I be, who am I without Sophie? and being sort of forged by her, because I think I was. There was so little time to be that woman. Now, I'm 54, and in the last couple of years, the last 18 months, I'm divorced. I've been divorced for a couple of years. But I met and fell in love with a man, and I feel like I met someone who fell in love with me the Mm. me that came before or did he 
you know, I don't know. I was most worried about that when I got divorced. Like, how would anyone, you know, who am I without all of this? Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think is probably pretty common to most mothers, to mm. mothers in general, who who are we without our children and how they shaped us? It, it is a little more extreme when you have a child who's going to be with you until they die or you die. As you've talked about, your life is really enveloped by uh, caregiving for Sophie. What, is, what does caregiving mean to you? Sometimes I say, I'm so, I wish that I could just be a mother and not be a caregiver and a mother. It's the day-to-day slog of taking care of someone which is not clean. It's grueling physically and it's grueling emotionally when they have seizures or some other sort of chaotic condition. Mm. Caregiving is literally 24-7. It's a 24-7 job. It's never out of my mind. It's also managing. It's like being. I say that I'm the CEO of Sophie Inc. Mm, Because there are so many systems of care, whether it's education or health insurance. There's the doctors themselves. There's getting respite. There's babysitting. There's hiring people. I mean, basically, you face up to the fact that unless you hire someone and pay money, your child will not just not have a, they don't have a friend. They don't, it, it, I, that, that's what caregiving mm-hmm. is. On the other hand, caregiving is an incredible honor because it's, it is, there is a selflessness to it that's imposed on you, but it's an honor because it's unconditional love. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. And it, it's not something that I had to work on or think about. It was sort of given to me. So I look on it as an honor. It's um, like everything else, I guess, that I've tried to grapple with and make meaning that I can be both exhausted by and sick of all the shit, as well as be so filled with love um, Mm -hmm. in the doing of it that there's no better purpose, I guess, Mm -hmm. that I could have imagined to be able to care for somebody so kind of pure as my daughter is on the other hand the black humored part i have a friend in new york who i hope will listen to this who is equal if not more black humored than than i and in november it's called national family caregiver month so it's national na fa ka mo and we put a the word i mean can i use it curse word yeah it's oh. it's this is real so it's explicit <laughs> we call it national fucking family caregiver month so na fa fa ka mo so every day of november as the whole world unites around family caregivers ha we try to highlight one particularly onerous thing that we've done that day and they mm. they usually have to do with insurance companies or dealing with some obdurate people or even vomit, diarrhea, changing beds. Um, One of the things that I hate most about caregiving is the changing sheets at three in the morning when they get wet. Yeah. 
Um, and I think about when I had my babies and how that kind of like slog when they would be nursing and they would be soaked or they would have blowouts or something and you were so exhausted from nursing and taking care of them. And I think, oh my God, I've been doing that for 22 years. So mm, that's, that's caregiving too. Yeah, that's the slog of it, right? Yes. In what ways is your life as a caregiver for Sophie different from what people might think of it? People who are not caregiving for 22 years and for the future. People love to say, oh, I couldn't do what you do, or you're so amazing, I could never do that. And I always, that, that a lot, I'm not alone in this, I'm sort of the voice of many caregivers or extreme parents that what would you do? I mean, you of course you would do it. I mean, maybe not as well as I do sometimes, but you might bring other strengths to to it. What people don't know and I mean, this would I could put on my advocacy hat here because I have different hats and I've actually worked professionally as an advocate and a parent sort of a parent expert mm-hmm. in different initiatives that are national and otherwise and one of the things is that caregiving is one of it's invisible and unseen there are tens of thousands of of people like myself who are caregiving I think we're getting more visibility now because of people caring for their aging parents that's right people living longer and of course in past generations children like my daughter would have been institutionalized and the state would have quote unquote taken care of them but of course we found that living at home is the best way for people who have disabilities or are aging to be cared for but we haven't caught up to that in helping caregivers to do that it's exhausting physically emotionally the supports are not there there are some supports but they're not enough so I think I would say for people listening who want to know perk up your ears that caregivers like myself and my friends and the tens of thousands of others are doing the work of we're doing real work that's not valued in any way other than people saying, I couldn't do what you do. What you do is so amazing. You're a saint, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But we're actually doing work that isn't, I mean, there's some, there's some quote unquote government money, but Lord knows we're, we're living in a culture now that uh, all of everything seems to be at risk of being taken away. And it's hard to, I think it's hard because we've monetized everything. Like every human has some kind of monetary worth or value so that if I get money to help me to take care of Sophie in lieu of putting her in her institution, there's something icky Mm. about that. I mean, Sophie, basically, in the way our culture looks at things, she has no value. Mm -hmm. What is she giving back? Right. I think that's one of the most essential things that people are going to be grappling with over the next 20 or 50 years is how do we not just compensate caregivers, but value them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. All, all those women who are caring for their parents. <laughs> yes. You mentioned about value, and I wanted to 
ask about that. Since you've had this experience of, of raising and caring for Sophie, how has that affected the way in which you think about the value of a life? Mm. That's the other part of my book on identity and fragmentation is what what does it mean to be human? Does it mean you're like a productive member of society, giving and working and putting things out there? Does it mean you're breathing? So I don't have an answer. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I grapple and to be honest, wonder about it myself. Like what is the whole, like my son said, or actually the same son who made the crack about who lives like this. He also had a breakdown once and said, you know, what's it all about? What is it all about? What is Sophie's life about? What's it for? Mm-hmm. What does it mean? And I, I would say everything like, you know how the older you get, you realize the less you know. Mm. Um, some of it, other you know a lot. I'm still wondering that too. There are days where I think I remember watching a dog in a park with its owner, and the owner was throwing the frisbee to the dog, and the dog would catch it, and then the, he would say, "Bring it back." And and I remember this was when Sophie was really young, and I remember thinking. She can't even do that. Mm. As a writer, you know, I'm able to kind of dissociate in a way and observe these little things. At the same time, you know, I've, I mean, if I look in Sophie's eyes, like she is a whole human being with full integrity that is not an angel, is not here to teach us all something she's has integrity every human being has integrity and so I think that's part of my mission is to convey that just because you're not giving or putting out in a way that is measurable Mm -hmm. that has value and that would go for speech too I wince Sometimes when even very intellectual people will talk about language defines us. Uh, I I don't want to say it doesn't always, but I do think it's something to think about. Why is speech and language, why does that define us? I mean, there's many ways to be human and to have integrity and... How has the experience caused you to reflect on the value of your own life? On the dark side, when I fantasize about running away or disappearing, I think, oh, man, their lives would be so screwed. But then they'd they'd figure it out. (laughs) I don't know. I'm pretty fierce and kind of iconoclastic in this particular time in the world with politics like they are and what we're all contending with. Uh, On the one hand, I feel exhausted, like, damn, now we got to fight about this again. Mm. On the other hand, I think the fiercer, the better. Mm. I have no trouble. I I think that's one thing I could probably speak for other parents who are extreme parents or who advocate for their children with disabilities. Like, damn, you you have no idea how hard we work, how inexhaustible we are Mm. Um, so we're not going to lay over and have very hard fought for rights and 
money and aid and all that disappear Mm -hmm. um, without a fight. And we fight really well. And Mm. we do it all the time. We're very experienced. How has your perspective on what's important changed through your experience of having a child with disabilities? That's an ongoing thing. I mean, like a lot of women, I, I was raised in the South, and so appearance and um, body images and all that kind of thing, I've struggled with not all my life because what what hasn't remained constant is that I used to be sort of an effortlessly thin person. And I think over the years, I had, um, you know, struggled with, I, I didn't take care of myself, I didn't exercise and things like that. I mean, I'm feeling really good now, I'm very healthy. I think I have to consciously tell myself, like, as you, you know, as I'm aging and all, like, it's so, it's so not important. Um, the, the obvious stuff. I mean, living in a town like LA where everybody's getting Botox and this and that. I mean, that, that, that was like handed to me with having a disabled child. Sure. It's that, that sort of perspective. And it, it was as easy as when I had the second and the third child. I mean, I always would laugh when people would say, is he sleeping through the night, meaning my son? Mm-hmm. And I would think like, oh, who the hell cares about a little bit of sleep for whatever, however many years, I mean, months or something when when they're healthy and good, like, really? I mean, I didn't sleep through the night. I still don't really fully. Mm-hmm. But certainly in the first five years of Sophie's life, sometimes she would scream literally 22 out of 24 hours. I mean, it's it was outrageous. So my perspective from the get go with my typical kids. Now that can backfire because it means sometimes I might neglect Mm -hmm. things. Like recently my 16-year-old son, he's complained for like a really long time. I'm too embarrassed to tell you how long about his finger that hurt. And I just kind of roll my eyes and think, "Uh uh-huh. Okay, well, I don't know. Maybe I think he's making fun of me now because I told him that it could be just inflammation, that maybe he needs to eat less sugar. And so we went to the orthopedist because he really was complaining. And it turns out that he has like a benign bone cyst that needs to be surgically removed. And of course, I'm getting all end of grief, like, you don't care about me. You don't care. So my perspective (laughs) is sometimes, you know, I, I maybe have too much liberties. And, and that was a problem earlier. Now I'm more easygoing. But when my friends with their typical kids, had, you know, the normal issues in LA of a certain class where you're freaking out about what school your kid's going to go to and what college and all that, that would make me almost sick. Right. Not not just envy, because there was a bit of envy, like, should my life be like that? Mm. But also, I realized with my own sons, like, don't, but everything is fine. Everything is good. So right. So you have to kind of balance being too blasé, blasé, but also resentful because resentful. I found myself feeling 
resentful of some of my friends as they kvetched endlessly about stuff like that that is not is really not important it really isn't and I think people eventually figure that out too but I think my resentment was more like can't you see that you know right you you learned it uh, yeah earlier than they did yeah so just in conclusion, could you just talk about what you're working on now that's top of mind important to you? I'm working on getting over my son being in college. It was so hard to say goodbye to him. Mm. But as far as creatively, I'm working with an editor on this book um, that I'm sending her, you know, 50 to 100 pages every month or so, and she's Uh, helping me to edit it and organize it and get it into some sort of structure that I can then hopefully have it published. So I'd I'd like to find an agent and a publisher for it. So that's number one. I'm also doing freelance writing, which I need more. I have to really hustle for work because I need the, the work. So that's on the creative side. And then my, uh, you know, I still have Sophie at home with all sure. her caregiving, and then my son Oliver's at home. He's a junior, so trying to make a family that way. And I'm seeing a man and kind of deepening a relationship, which is very important to me. So I'm busy. I have a rich, wonderful life of lots to do. Yeah. Lots on the horizon. I said, I like being in my 50s. I think it's. It's uh, awesome. I, I I like it a lot. Well, thanks so much for coming in to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's great. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Elizabeth, for speaking with me about your life and work as the CEO of Sophie Inc. and how you've developed your craft as a writer. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real with Diane McDaniel wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know why you listened and what you like about The Real Podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. Follow Real on Facebook at Real with Diane McDaniel and on Twitter at at Real the Podcast. Reach us at realthepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. Thanks for listening.